Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. I want to start today by reading a few quotes, and just as a thought experiment, I'm going to leave out the nouns that indicate what these quotes are exactly talking about. Okay, here's one from a major politician, quote, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the two races until the blank race becomes extinct must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this result with but painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power and wisdom of man to avert. Here's another quote, this time from a major periodical. We hope that the government will render such aid as will enable the citizens of the North to carry on a war of extermination until the last blank has been killed. Then and not until then are our lives and property safe. Extermination is no longer even a question of time. The time has already arrived. The work has already commenced. And let the first person who says peace be regarded as a traitor and a coward. Now, I'm guessing the title of this podcast series has kind of tipped my hand as to where I'm going here. But think about when else in history you might have heard these sentiments expressed in such a way. And then think about the word you would use to describe those moments in history. In academic circles and the public at large, it's a word that's so rarefied as to exclude exactly those moments and processes where the term undeniably applies. When, for instance, 90% of a population falls victim to massacre, expulsion, and exposure. And when those acts are wholeheartedly and publicly endorsed by the citizenry. This was California in the middle of the 19th century. Thankfully, we do have a scholar who is not reluctant to put the exact name to these decades, genocide. Brendan C. Lindsay joins us to talk about his new book, Murder State, California's Native American Genocide, 1846 to 1873, just out from the University of Nebraska Press. Brendan Lindsay, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. 
First, today we'll be discussing your new book, Murder State, California's Native American Genocide, 1846 to 1873. It's just released from the University of Nebraska Press. This is uh, an impressive, if uh, at times very troubling book, which documents, situates, and defines uh, the concerted effort to exterminate the indigenous people of what is now California in the first decades after its incorporation into the United States. There's a ton to discuss here, but I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to tackle this uh, very heavy subject. Well, uh, I'm, I'm Brendan Lindsay. I have a PhD from the University of California at Riverside. Uh, I studied Native American history there. Uh, I've been out in the world uh, teaching in both the California State University system and now in the Florida State University system, uh, even before I obtained that PhD. Uh, and I came to my topic, uh, Native American genocide in California, really through my teaching, uh, which I was doing uh, as early as 2004 uh, in the California State University system. Uh, where I was teaching uh, California history courses to prepare teachers as part of their credentialing program. And as I taught about and thought about the Native American experience in California, uh, I thought about uh, really the lack of attention paid to uh, Native American history in California and our state curriculum uh, and so uh, that really led me down the road to beginning to study uh, what had been the Native American experience in California history. I'm glad to know you were, you were a teacher um, of undergrads. I want to actually return to that a little bit later and talk about um, how undergrads in California uh, sort of absorb or deal with um, this framework that you're bringing to bear on history, particularly this, this idea of genocide. We'll return to that a little later, but I want to start, uh, as you do in the book, by grounding this discussion in the scholarship of genocide studies. It's a genocide is a fairly recent nomenclature, as you as you point out, if not a new practice. Uh, these discussions are obviously complicated by those who want to reserve the term for uh, a singular historical event, namely the Nazi Holocaust, rather than see uh, that extermination campaign as as one among several of such cataclysms. Why is it important for you to engage in that scholarly debate and to, to lay out um, a whole discussion about how we define uh, this, this incredibly powerful term, genocide? Well, my, first and foremost, um, I think unless you do that, um, it leaves ample room for people to preclude it, to marginalize it, to uh, make it somehow secondary in nature. And uh, of course, it's a process fraught with difficulties, uh, particularly when, in essence, you're talking about, uh, in some cases, almost measuring atrocity against atrocity. Uh, sometimes there seems to be very little payback uh, for one engaged in that kind of thinking. Uh, for myself, uh, I wanted to approach it from the perspective of the national narrative of the United States of America, for instance, uh, when I looked to uh, the curriculums that I was teaching uh, in California to these uh, soon-to-be teachers in our uh, K-12 system, uh, California has a mandated curriculum, and in it, um, the genocide of Native Americans is not included. 
And uh, indeed, it's specifically classed as not a genocide. It's classed as a, quote-unquote, extreme human rights violation uh, by the uh, California Department of Education. And as I looked at that and thought about that, uh, I began to see uh, the ways in which uh, the United States and our history was excused from having participated uh, in a genocide uh, that in many ways bears many resemblances, not just to the Nazi Holocaust of Jews, but uh, to genocides uh, committed against Armenians, Ukrainians, Cambodians, uh, and many other people in the historical record. And then a, a second reason I wanted to pursue it was the work of Raphael Lemkin, uh, the man who coined the term genocide. And I think uh, in the way we've come to think about and define genocide today, um, some scholars and uh, government organizations have well as well have not remained true to his original thinking about the term. Uh, and so I wanted to get back to his foundational thinking about that. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, kind of a, a new term for an old crime or an old practice in the history of the world. Uh, so it was important for me to uh, create something uh, in the form of this book uh, that would kind of posit Native American genocide uh, in the conversation of genocides in world history. When you were researching the book, did you have, uh, were you aware of Lemkin's model that you then went and tested against what you were finding, or did you, or, or did you discover a model after to sort of fit what uh, what was speaking to you from these documents? If that makes sense, it, it does. Well, I think it was the latter. Certainly, in the case of when when I first began my study, um, I had not heard of Raphael Lemkin. Uh, I came to my topic uh, really through evidence. Uh, my mentor in graduate school, uh, Cliff Travser, had written a document collection uh, called Exterminate Them, which was uh, an edited collection of primary source documents um, that wasn't really making a detailed argument about genocide, uh, but rather was relating uh, some of the historical atrocities that had happened in California. Um, at the same time, trying to counter kind of a popular mythical narrative of uh, rip-roaring good times of gold rush in California. And as I read those sources, uh, I became interested in it. Uh, he encouraged me to dig deeper. Uh, his book, in particular, his documents were mainly focused on Southern California and a very narrow scope of time, excuse me. And uh, so as I looked into things, I learned along the way about Lemkin and uh, I also learned about uh, this particularly American brand of genocide, if you will, uh, where it's not a centrally organized uh, genocidal state uh, encouraging its population to genocide. Uh, rather, it is uniquely organized from the periphery. It is uh, a citizen-led genocide uh, and really a state-supported effort. Uh, and certainly the United States government uh, was not the author of this genocide, but it was certainly a sponsor and supporter of it. So I think I came to it uh, in a kind of an organic way. Uh, and I've come to uh, maybe more than ever, maybe more than I first had it uh, in the beginning, uh, admired Lemkin's open-mindedness uh, because his definition 
uh, compared with other definitions uh, in the post-war world, I think is the most broad and inclusive definition I've come to find. Hmm. Uh, that actually it gets us into uh, one of the most compelling themes of this book, in my opinion. Um, when you talk about how it was a citizen-led genocidal effort, you make a very compelling link between the development of democratic institutions in California, the development of democracy uh, with native genocide. Why is that linkage such an important dimension to understand about the narrative here? Well, I think it's... Um kind of part and parcel of uh, understanding how it works. It's a, a process of uh, people now arriving during the California gold rush era and then uh, tens of thousands of more uh, people coming in year after year after year. And they begin to constitute um, from square one uh, democratic and republic institutions here at, uh, in California and uh, they truly create um, a settler's state, uh, a settler's democracy. Um, and uh, they do it in a very short period of time, uh, maybe because of the gold rush and the impetus to come to California, maybe in a shorter time than is observable in any other point in American history. And you can really see the connective tissues of how the system works at a time when um, I think it's an unavoidable conclusion that government really does respond to the will of the people uh, and government is reactive to their interests. And indeed, in its earliest days, um, some of the people who constitute the government are uh, much like those people they represent. They were just months before, quite literally, uh, failed gold miners or they were ranchers, they were farmers. And they are very quickly then uh, given roles and responsibilities in the judiciary or the legislative or the executive branch. And they're bombarded by uh, petitions from um, everyday white citizens of California, male citizens, of course, uh, being called upon to represent the will of the people. And disturbingly, of course, the will of the people uh, is to help support and bring about a genocide of Native people. Uh, so I think that's the, the, the key reason to establish the connection in the California story. And then I think it's an important uh, point to make about uh, democracy in general. Uh, there's kind of a, maybe it's a hope that uh, democracy is a benevolent institution in the way that people in the United States have conceived of it. And uh, I think uh, the case of California, at least, points out uh, the terrible uses that uh, what might be a benevolent system in other circumstances uh, can be put uh, can be put to. So when, when Euro-Americans began to colonize California in greater numbers in the 1840s, you write how they brought with them, um, in some cases, centuries of, of mental baggage about who Indians were and what should be done with them, even if many of them never actually had met an Indian person in their life. This makes up what you invoke as the conditions of a guilt-free massacre. Uh, talk about these conditions in the, in the wider span. What were, what understandings were these settlers bringing with them from American history, from the East, and from their past? 
Well, uh, first, the guilt-free massacre. I should pay uh, homage to Troy Duster. Those are uh, his words, but uh, part of a historiography that's that's rich on this topic, um, beginning with uh, Francis Jennings' uh, uh, writings all the way to Brian Dippy and more recent scholars. Uh, historians have been writing for a while now on the way that uh, Euro-Americans perceived Indians and uh, my job in the book was to take some of that scholarship, uh, apply it to thinking about genocide, and uh, I wanted to make the point of how people imagined Indians. Uh, what were Indians um, in the American mindset? And what was this paradigm that was going to allow the commission of genocide, uh, which is uh, monstrous, of course. Uh, it's a story of, uh, as you said, sometimes century held belief, centuries held beliefs uh, where people have achieved the kind of disassociation with Native American peoples and their humanity, uh, what might be called cognitive dissonance. And uh, it's deployed in a variety of ways, uh, many of which I talked about in the book, everything from uh, kind of national narratives of history as a prescriptive literature how uh, young Americans would have grown up learning about Indians as adversaries, as savages, as obstacles to civilization, uh, to uh, trail guides and trail narratives, uh, people on the roads of westward expansion, uh, literally consulted guidebooks, of course, about how to safely make their way across the continent. And you would find thinking uh, to predispose them to imagine Indians in certain ways and those. Uh, newspapers uh, repeated those stories and referenced those histories, as did uh, the popular cultures of the time. And then something I did not get into the book, and I'm not sure if anyone could really get into it, uh, would be just the popular oral traditions, the stories people told one another, the folk tales. Uh, that we know existed, but we can't really understand how perhaps they too connected people's thinking uh, between Indians and uh, savagery and inhumanity. Mm. And uh, I made a point to talk about it because I, I didn't want people to think that uh, people arrived in California and began a new process about moving towards a genocide, but rather uh, trying to have the reader think about people arriving in California preconditioned to uh, fear and hate Indians, uh, essentially ready to make a go of genocide rather than uh, something particular happening here in California that uh, hydrated some type of genocidal impulse in them. You know, you, you write about how these these trail guides that people consulted often talked about the need to steel yourself against um, Indian attacks. And yet the vast majority of travelers, as you point out, had absolutely no experience with Native people. Those who did have experience with Native people uh, tended to be positive. And yet there's this gripping terror at every turn, every uh, sound in the night, every time, uh, you know, uh, uh, livestock runs off. It, it has to be an Indian out there in the bushes. It's unbelievable, actually. Yeah, and I think it, it goes back to uh, the preconditioning that they had had before they left. Um, I think they have a, 
a lens to view it through or to have, uh, uh, or to hear it through those noises. Uh, they know what it means uh, or those uh, sites there really should not think are uh, clearly threatening to them look crystalline in their clarity that um, as you said, that uh, bump or hummock on the hill is not just a tumbleweed or some sagebrush. It's an Indian lion in wait to kill them. And they know this, uh, not instinctually, but they know it intellectually. They know it from um, their experiences of Indians uh, of a secondhand nature. I know this is a, a slightly different context, um, but I was, at one point I was reading the book and I was reminded of uh, the Winter Soldier testimonies that Iraq Veterans Against the War organized in 2008. There was an incredibly powerful speech at that forum by a former private named Michael Preisner who talked about how uh, the military hierarchy and the military culture often used uh, dehumanizing language, racist nomenclature to refer to Iraqis in the occupation. It helped uh, govern the relationship between the local population and the occupying force. Uh, your book documents a, a similar thing here. Um, there was a particular kind of language that early settlers in California used to talk about Indians. How would you characterize that language and, and how did it shape the behavior and the relationship of, of these early settlers to the indigenous population? Well, I think language like that and uh, the, the literature on genocide, particularly that produced by sociologists, um, includes uh, much, much information on the ex uh, type of example you mentioned. Um, and it's essentially um, something you can find in almost all historical examples of genocide. And it's this uh, kind of cognitive dissonance, which can uh, in part take place through the use of language, particularly derogatory language, uh, can take place through the use of humor uh, to essentially laugh off uh, what might otherwise seem uh, a terrible blow to one's psyche uh, as one is exterminating what could be seen as human beings. And I think in the case of uh, California's Indian genocide, using uh, pejorative terms like digger, uh, which was the term uh, of choice used for California Indians, uh, to use this term digger was to uh, literally in part show them out to be animal-like. Uh, and that term digger, according to many, comes from uh, this idea that they were people who dug for roots uh, like an animal and grazed upon roots. And uh, somehow you could subsume their entire identity in that word. And so in the moment uh, where one was faced with killing, uh, one would be killing a digger or one would be killing an animal or one would be killing something other than human. Uh, in that moment. And uh, I, I think it aids in the commission of genocide. It salves the conscience uh, and it allows someone to, uh, a person who might otherwise be quite moral and upright, uh, God-fearing and law-abiding, uh, can help a person overcome a, a mental, if not a, a moral barrier uh, at taking the life of another human being by um, essentially positioning them as something other than human. Now, in the early years uh, of California's Euro-American settlement, 
You write how Indians were used, uh, were relied upon for labor, often in conditions of slavery. But as years progress, it seems that whites became more interested in uh, extermination than in labor exploitations. So what changed over those years? Well, the uh, gold rush change would be the the place to start. Uh, Early in the story, uh, 1848, with the discovery of gold, uh, California is only a sparsely populated place. Um, By most estimates in all of the state of California, um, there's only about 6,000 persons mining for gold uh, in the rich motherlode region of California. Uh, and that's not counting the Native American people that were living there at the time of the gold's discovery. Uh, in 1849, uh, if one looks at that same story, that same uh, population, it's risen by uh, nearly 100,000 more people in just 12 months' time. And uh, they've come to a California uh, that's not prepared to receive 100,000 persons. Um, it's not able to feed 100,000 people or to house or to clothe them. And indeed, there's a particularly high death rate among people coming to California, working in the gold fields in its first six months. And the story of California in the decade to follow the 1850s uh, in many ways remains a story of overpopulation uh, and an attempt by people to Uh, serve that population, to feed them, to clothe them, to house them, to make money off of the gold rush in other ways. And so in the 1850s, uh, California is terribly labor-starved, and Native Americans are a source of viable labor, particularly those Native people that had been living uh, on rancherias under the control of Mexico in 1846 and before uh, These are uh, sometimes skilled laborers that have been taught trades, uh, some going as far back as the Spanish mission system. Uh, They're capable cowboys or vaqueros. Uh, They have skill sets that can uh, help support the demands of the gold rush in California. By the 1860s, however, it becomes a different story. By the 1860s, the so-called easy pickings, that what one could find in the river, or easily take out of the ground in the form of gold in California is largely run out. And uh, those now hundreds of thousands of gold miners uh, turn away from the gold fields and uh, want to live uh, what one might say is a normal life in California, uh, pursuing a profession, farming, lumbering, fishing, ranching. And uh, you get a tremendous labor surplus in California in the 1860s that makes Indian people now no longer uh, vital to the survival of your Americans in California as they were in the 1850s. Now in the 1860s, um, they're essentially in the way. Uh, They are still occupying a significant amount of land in California, and uh, they are uh, become now a, a nuisance or excuse me, or an obstacle as opposed to uh, a vital force that helped Euro-Americans make a go of the gold rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think by the 1860s, that's why the nature and the tenor of it uh, changes so drastically. 
Talk about this term you use, democratic death squad. What are you, what are you talking about there? Well, I'm thinking about when I uh, coined that uh, phrasing, uh, I'm thinking about the process by which um, most of the overt physical genocide was carried out, uh, particularly in the northern part of the state, but also sometimes in the south. Uh, it was carried out by uh, local communities of citizens who uh, organized in what we would call today a grassroots fashion. Uh, they began by writing to uh, their elected representatives in Sacramento, uh, pleading their case that uh, as they were living in the late 1850s or in the 1860s, uh, in this new California, transitioning away from its gold rush identity, uh, they were living in a California where they were attempting to become farmers and ranchers and they were pushing Indian people now out of their traditional land base. And uh, as they did that, as they killed Indians or uh, pushed them into places where they had no food sources, uh, they began to come into uh, violent contact with Indian people who fought back. Uh, and they wrote to their elected representatives asking them uh, for permission to organize volunteer companies. And under the laws of the state of California, uh, dating back to 1850, uh, there was a clause in the laws of the state that allowed the formation of volunteer companies in times of local emergencies. And so under the law, they asked permission of the governor of the state of California uh, to form these companies. And uh, they did this by meeting, usually at the local uh, tavern or hotel or inn, or the home of a prominent landowner in the area, came together, wrote a petition, signed it as a community, uh, sent that off, and uh, in their language in those petitions, they would demand their rights as a democratically uh, represented people. Uh, they would demand that the government uh, support their right to organize, and indeed, in the aftermath of it, reimburse them for the expense. And so uh, they typically, in this story, achieved that permission. Uh, even when they did not get the permission, they often organized anyway. And they uh, constituted then these volunteer companies, which took that uh, electorate, if you will, that had signed the original petition and took volunteers from that base of manpower. And uh, these companies, 20 or 30 men was fairly common, uh, would constitute the volunteer company uh, they'd be outfitted and supplied by the community, and then they would go out into the local um, uh, Indian population, and they would uh, work to uh, wipe them out. And then when they would return, they would uh, send reports to the government, uh, make a bill out to the state for their expenses, and seek redress under the law. And so as I looked at that, um, despite the warnings of the governor uh, to only punish the guilty or to uh, capture rather than to kill, uh, these groups to me uh, caused me to borrow that modern phrasing, death squad, and apply it to these people. It seemed that really that was their only purpose was to uh, bring about the physical extermination of the Indian populations in their communities. Mm -hmm. So as this, this genocidal campaign is ramping up and becoming more organized, 
There's this incredible couching of the process in the language of inevitability. You write about a state committee uh, that was convened in 1860 in California uh, when a member wrote, quote, history teaches us the inevitable destiny of the red men is total extermination or isolation. And yet these are people who at that very moment are making decisions. Presumably there were other decisions that could have been made. Yet talking about inevitability, talking about just one small piece in a longer historical process. What's going on here? Well, I think it is, um, as you say, it's, it's part of a historical process in the mindset of 19th century Americans. Um, uh, there's a rich literature on this as well. Uh, books like The Vanishing American. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, for decades, even before the California gold rush, uh, Native people were seen, to, seen as a doomed race of people. Uh, and their uh, extermination was just a foregone conclusion. Um, you can find evidence as early as uh, Puritans in New England writing about the death by disease of hundreds and hundreds of Native people, uh, and they couch it in terms of the divine will of the Creator uh, is to uh, take these people from this world to make way for us. Uh, flashing forward to the 19th century, um, I think it's an idea bound up in Manifest Destiny. Uh, also another idea that's an old one in American history, uh, even though it's not called that before 1845. I think there had always been this idea of a divine providence of uh, a nation stretching from sea to shining sea. And uh, the fact of the matter that uh, hundreds of thousands or even millions of people might lay between those two seas uh, was just seen as part of uh, a natural, inevitable unfolding of a change uh, of races in North America. Uh, in California, certainly, uh, the quotation you share is not a rare one, unfortunately. You have examples of the governor of California uh, making statements saying, I know a war between the races exists and uh, it is sad, but uh, Native people, Indians will pass away in it. Uh, there are federal officials. Uh, perhaps the best example is uh, Edward Beale, the first federal official tasked with Indian affairs in the state of California in his initial report writes that uh, Indian peoples are being exterminated by the white population here, and really there's nothing he can do about it, um, even though that is his very job, is the health and welfare of Native people here. Um, and so I think it is uh, part of the larger uh, narrative and larger set of historical forces operating in the United States at that time that viewed Native people as a, a doomed race of people. Um, and uh, I think it's fair to argue in the way that people reacted to that kind of thinking. Uh, their reaction was essentially to accept it, to say there's not much we can do about uh, destiny or fate or divine will. And many people that might have made those choices to, to do otherwise decided uh, not to make the choice that might have uh, at least averted the genocide in some way. 
Yeah, it's that incredible use of the passive voice. They are being exterminated as opposed to, you know, people are exterminating them. Um, it reminds me, actually, the first time I read the the Marshall trilogy, the uh, Justice Chief Justice John Marshall's famous set of Supreme Court rulings in the in the early 19th century about Indian nations. Everything was uh, in the past tense about the sort of fate of Indian people. And this is even before any of the sort of so-called Indian wars had taken place anywhere west of the Mississippi, and it was already uh, in the past tense. Um, I want to ask you a bit about the press and what role it played. Uh, to do that, I just want to quickly read a quote you used to start one of your chapters. Uh, it's from uh, the Marysville Daily Evening Herald in 1853. The newspaper writes, quote, now that the general Indian hostilities have commenced, we hope that the government will render such aid as will enable the citizens of the North to carry on a war of extermination until the last red skin of these tribes has been killed. Then, and not until then, are our lives and property safe. Extermination is no longer even a question of time. The time has already arrived, the work has been commenced, and let the first white man who says treaty or peace be regarded as a traitor. And that pretty much speaks for itself. I mean, that is... It's almost more overt than things you would read uh, in the Third Reich in, in Joseph Goebbels' papers. I mean, this was this a common sentiment in in press reports in California in this time? This overt call for genocide. Absolutely. Um, my first experience with the overtness of the the press with statements like these were actually. The title of my mentor's book, uh, Exterminate Them, that I mentioned earlier, that's a, a headline from a Central California newspaper. Uh, and the story that uh, comes after it, um, they, they never, of course, use the word genocide. It has not been coined yet. But to, in every other way, they conceive of genocide uh, in precisely, I think, the same modern uh, ways that we do today, and in the way we think of it first, uh, a physical genocide, an overt genocide by uh, physical extermination without getting into any of the nuances of cultural genocide. Uh, it was quite common. And uh, in the quote, not only uh, be regarded as a traitor, but be regarded as a coward, uh, it goes on to say. Um, and so that's the language of um, really what you might see as uh, these frontier newspapers in California. Um, they bear a, a stark resemblance to the whole process of the peopling and restructuring of California. These newspaper editors um, are uh, representatives, fine representatives of their peers in the sense that uh, as their communities are petitioning uh, people in Sacramento that will well understand their position because they were just recently in the same type of position. Uh, editors of newspapers in California, and there are hundreds of them, uh, selling newspapers was an instant success in the California gold rush. So many hundreds of thousands of persons uh, looking for entertainment and news. Uh, several hundred presses popped up in California within the first decade and in the pages of newspapers, uh, as one of the great sources of documentation one studying this can find, um, just the in plain sight evidence that you uh, mentioned um, is at a level 
that is almost, uh, you wouldn't believe it unless you read it yourself, I think. Uh, and so these newspapers, in essence, are the mouthpieces of their communities, and you can take the temperature mm. of the community uh, through the types of stories that they run about uh, attitudes towards Native Americans. And uh, it's the regular story uh, that has this kind of language. Uh, and I tried in that chapter to um, show how widespread it was, not just in space, but in time. Uh, the articles with this type of, uh, of attitude in them continue decade after decade after decade in North and Central and Southern California. And they essentially, uh, in this particular quote you mentioned, they call upon uh, the men of the community essentially uh, to the to work of extermination. Uh, and if you say no, you're both a betrayer of your, not just your country, I think, but they're saying your race, and also you're a coward. You're not quite a man either. Mm. And so with this kind of uh, very powerful language, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of stories year after year after year uh, to be had. And here we have another um, sort of pillar of, of democracy, another democratic institution along with uh, the citizenry and the elected officials and the government institutions that were uh, participating in this genocide goes to the rest of your argument. Um, you mentioned this briefly earlier, and, and I know it's a longer question, but um, towards the end of the book, you write about how uh, the genocidal process altered form by the end of the 19th century. It was less outright massacre, but more cultural assault. And yet you use the term genocide to thread through both of those forms. What are the, the continuities and, and discontinuities between those two forms, the, the outright violence and the, the cultural violence that you talk about at the end of the 19th century? Well, um, I guess the place to start would be um, just in the way one defines genocide. Um, there are uh, those who would define genocide um, is not uh, including cultural genocide within the definition or only kind of narrowly conceiving of it. Uh, my example of that would be the UN Convention on Genocide. Uh, if you read it in its second article, it mainly contains uh, language about kind of the overt physical destruction of a group, but it does incorporate some elements of cultural genocide into its definition. Whereas if you look to someone like Raphael Lemkin and his original conception of it, um, he only saw the physical overt destruction of a group as just one category uh, of genocide. Uh, and he said that there were many ways to destroy a group besides physically killing them. Uh, one could uh, steal their children. One could uh, destroy their cultural cohesion. One could destroy the economic the economy that they relied upon. And there's a whole host of ways that you might end the viability of a group uh, and essentially kill them in another way. Uh, and so I think that's part of what is threading through those two eras. And that's what I meant uh, when I said that uh, it had transitioned from one thing to another by the turn of the century. Uh, by 1873 in California, uh, the Native American population had been 
reduced uh, by tremendous numbers. Uh, beginning in 1846, we were talking about a population of perhaps uh, 150,000 persons. Uh, by the time you get to the 1870s, uh, it's been reduced by uh, close to 100,000 people uh, by two-thirds. Uh, and as you go into the 1870s, um, the contact and the direct resistance and the push to move Native people off the most valuable lands in California uh, has lessened uh, as a result of the successes of those earlier overt physical genocides uh, to where you get to the point in 1873, uh, a war breaks out in northeastern California uh, where the United States Army, in one of its few kind of formal campaign appearances in California, is fighting a group of uh, Native Americans resisting them, the Modoc, and uh, they are finally defeated, the Modoc are, and they were removed. And beginning in 1873, uh, you begin to see an end to that physically focused genocide, and you begin to see the rise of reservations in California, boarding schools, uh, you see uh, Native American people uh, and their cultures being attacked in less overt ways, but no less damaging ways. So that by the time you get to 1900, the population of California Indians is down to only about 15,000 persons, 90% uh, uh, drop when you compare the aggregate totals of say, 50 years before with 1900. And uh, I made the point and made that my point of separation for the book because it's uh, another story, I think, uh, to be told, maybe to be told in some future research. Hmm. Now, this book is obviously the culmination of a, an immense amount of research. And, and while I found the experience of reading it quite intense, uh, I can only imagine what it was like to spend uh, a good deal of time working with these incredibly uh, sort of traumatic accounts of murder, of massacre, of kidnap, of rape. What was this research process like for you? I mean, how did, how did you cope with dealing with this stuff in terms of researching and writing on a, on a daily basis? Well, it was a, a tremendously emotional process. Um, I can still remember uh, very vividly when I defended uh, my prospectus to my uh, committee uh, and actually shedding tears uh, during that process. I'm actually a little emotional now just thinking of the moment. Uh, it's a heart-wrenching experience. Uh, I think what uh, pushed me through it and uh, what made it rewarding was uh, all throughout this process, I was teaching uh, in the California State University system and uh, quarter after quarter after quarter, sometimes in two or three sections of California history uh, per quarter, uh, I would spend some time on my own research uh, and share it with my students. And uh, I, I learned that it was a tremendously valuable uh, effort. Um, most of my students uh, had no idea that there were California Indians. Uh, most of my students thought Native Americans in California were imported here as part of the Spanish mission system. Uh, and so in their earlier education in California, they're taught about California history in the fourth grade. Uh, 
either uh, some misconception had come into their minds or maybe a, a willful misrepresentation by a well-meaning teacher. Uh, most of them had no idea of even a California Indian presence in our state. And then, of course, uh, the shocking nature of the way they were treated in this period of genocide. Um, and the real emotion that it brought out in my students as well was very important to me. Uh, it was also tremendously rewarding and worth pursuing, uh, despite the heartache, uh, knowing that uh, it has some real meaning in California for uh, people to be educated about Indian affairs there. Um, as I cover in the book, there's not a set of federal treaties uh, that were approved in the 19th century, uh, such as that other Native nations have had to fall back on in their relations with the United States. And, uh, of course, the treaties that were conducted, those uh, treaty negotiations, were uh, shelved by the United States Senate. And so uh, California Indian groups, uh, regionally at least, have maybe struggled in some ways uh, more so or in unique ways different from Indian people in other parts of the country. And I wanted my students to know and also readers of the book to understand uh, the sources of uh, conditions facing Indian people in California today are a product of this period of genocide. Uh, I also wanted students to understand uh, what uh, Indian gaming really represents in California. Uh, students coming into it um, saw Indian gaming as uh, simply an economic enterprise that uh, Indians, for some reason in California, have been given a special privilege to conduct. Uh, they could not contextualize it as uh, a way of uh, taking reservation lands, which uh, in Southern California uh, are in very arid desert places, uh, lacking in resources uh, that Native people had been concentrated on, pushed into, uh, essentially as places that whites in the 19th century had not wanted and uh, allowed them now through gaming to begin to take back their sovereignty, begin to become uh, economically viable as nations, to be self-supporting, uh, to begin to reclaim some of their heritage, and in the cases of some tribes, be able to get back their lands, even if only through purchasing them back. And so uh, that kind of sustained me through it. And of course, ultimately, and this I can only speculate on, I think anyone who studies genocide um, certainly can sustain themselves knowing that um, uh, as hard as it can be to study sometimes, it, it cannot compare even in the tiniest bit with those people it actually happened to. Uh, and also the realization that to not study it, to not make it public, to not share knowledge of it, is to engage in what I would argue is part of a commissioning of, uh, I'm sorry, a part of uh, committing genocide uh, in your own way by silencing it, by covering it up. You uh, aid in the conspiracy to commit genocide uh, and to not hold those who committed it accountable. And so for all those reasons, uh, I think I was sustained through it uh, despite the heartbreaking nature of it. Do you expect uh, to face any sort of pushback within 
academic circles. It seems like because not only have you you've taken on uh, quite explicitly and make and made a case for uh, genocide, but also that democracy uh, was essential to achieving that genocide. Um, do you do you expect pushback in the among other scholars? And and I guess I also wanted to ask you: Is is there still a reluctance in academic circles to use the word genocide to describe this process, or is that beginning to change? Well, uh, to, to the first part of the question, uh, I, I think absolutely. Um, I expect uh, pushback, or maybe maybe blowback is the better term. Um, I think absolutely, and uh, I welcome it. Um, I think that uh, to not have the conversation, uh, to not uh, risk the possible uh, disagreements of one's fellows, um, that's at the center of all scholarship, um, that chance that everyone will not agree. And I think in this case, uh, you mentioned earlier that vein of Holocaust scholarship that rejects all other Holocausts besides uh, the Jewish Holocaust uh, is not on par, is not uh, really meeting the standard of that term. Uh, so I expect that, and um, I I'm sure it will come, and uh, I look forward to defending uh, the research. Uh, I think uh, to your second point, uh, I have encountered uh, already uh, some reticence about using the term I've encountered it uh, as early as when I was a graduate student. I can remember uh, speaking with a member of the faculty at UC Riverside, and uh, he asked me about my research, and I told him what I was looking at, and uh, he immediately dismissed it uh, just out of hand. Uh, and this was a person who studied Eastern Europe, uh, and I tried to uh, very firmly but uh, – politely say, well, essentially, I haven't bumped into you in the archives, uh, or I, I didn't know you studied Native American history or California history. Uh, but he was undeterred by that. Uh, it just did not fit the traditional definition, uh, the way he had thought of it. And this is a you know, very well-educated person dismissing it out of hand. Um, and I've had that experience recently. Uh, as part of a job interview um, as well, just, you know, dismissed out of hand. Um, and then uh, in official circles, as I mentioned earlier, uh, right now it's been in, uh, been in use since the year 2000. Uh, the State uh, Department of Education in California, its model curriculum for teaching about genocide and human rights violations, uh, specifically classes, uh, Native American genocide, uh, well, it doesn't class it as that. Right. Classes it as a, a human rights violation. And in fact, um, the, the way it describes that human rights violation, it just says it, uh, it was in the form of discrimination against American Indians, but also against uh, uh, women and the disabled and minority groups and homosexuals. It's just part of a, a broader category, just summed up by the one word discrimination. Hmm. And uh, not to belittle those particular topics, but it, one that did not quite compare uh, in my mind yeah, immediately. Sure. And then, uh, you know, it's uh, the most euphemistic 
description of, even if you wanted to say it was an extreme human rights violation, it, it was the the most brief and euphemistic word they probably could have found to describe it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, for what it's worth, I think this should be required reading uh, in every California classroom. Um, but I know you're, we're probably a long way off from, from that um, because it's a, it's a convincing work. And I think that if you're, if you're on the land, if your possibility for living the life that you have on that land is, is the result of this process, the first step towards accountability is at least acknowledging it. And then you can have a further discussion from there about uh, some form of, of reparative justice, uh, even though at this point I don't even know what that would look like. But um, but certainly the first step is engaging with it. Um, so I've been speaking with Brendan Lindsay, the author of Murder State, California's Native American Genocide, 1846 to 1873 from the University of Nebraska Press. Brendan, I always feel a little bit bad asking this last question because I know you've just finished putting out this massive book, but uh, sometimes people like to answer it anyway. So I'll ask you, uh, what are you thinking about now? What are you working on now? Uh, where do you see your scholarship going from here? Oh, well, uh, don't feel bad about asking. Um, actually, um, as much as I put into the book and as much evidence is in there, uh, for, for every piece I put in, um, I might have had to have left five, six, seven other things out uh, as a voluminous evidence. Uh, and so I'm really working to uh, put those uh, pieces of evidence to use. I'm working on uh, an article now uh, about the use of humor to help achieve uh, cognitive dissonance in cases of genocide. Uh, I'm working on uh, another article about uh, fears of uh, racial pollution uh, by Indian people of white populations as a reasoning behind genocide. Um, and of course, uh, I have my duties here as a lecturer in Florida, uh, but I'm working hard to try and make my way back to California and get a job there. So uh, plenty on my plate. Sure. Well, it seems like an appropriate place for you to be teaching. Uh, well, thank you so much, Brendan, for taking the time to speak with us today. I know I, I personally look forward to your future work and uh, have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thank you. I've been speaking with Brendan C. Lindsay, author of Murder State, California's Native American Genocide, 1846 to 1873 from the University of Nebraska Press. We're on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com where you can listen to all of our past podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter where we encourage you to follow us. You can like our Facebook page and please share our Facebook page as well. You can also post questions, comments, or suggestions for books you'd like to hear discussed on the program. Next month, I'll be speaking with Andrew Newman about his forthcoming book, On Records, Delaware Indians, Colonists, and the Media of History and Memory. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks so much for listening.